Welcome to the podcast of Mosaic Church, celebrating diversity within community. So we're going to actually be over in that Romans text that Willie read for us. And that's where we're going to rest a little bit this morning. We may come back to this about 15 more times throughout this uh, season in our world to remind ourselves on how we are called to, thank you, to respond and to act in the face of all that's going on. It seems to be every four years as a country, we forget how to act with each other and how to treat each other. and A little bit of that kind of hangs on and we carry it with us. Um, and I think that's just indicative of when you have rivals, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, it doesn't affect me as much as an adult, and not this is not a statement on anything other than I just don't pay attention that much anymore, but when I was a kid, I remembered there was no bigger event in my life outside of maybe my birthday and Christmas in the rivalry game between Clemson and South Carolina. It was like, and to me, like to be able to go to that game seemed like, and I never went as a kid. I remember the first time I went, and I remember being a little bit let down. I don't remember who won or who lost. I just remember being let down because I thought as a kid, like this was the biggest event. When I was a kid, I listened to most of the games on the radio. There was maybe three or four games a year that were on TV, and those were great times. But mostly me and my dad would ride around go to the, um, you know, the landfill or do whatever we had to do that day. And, the, you know, always at 1 o'clock the game would always come on and we'd listen to this game and it was fantastic. I remember one particular, we were driving down to Greenwood and remember this, but David Treadwell was a kicker and he kicked the game-winning field goal. And I'm not kidding you, I remember where we were on the road. The radio goes out as they're getting ready for this kick. And we had no clue what happened until we got to Greenwood and my cousin uh, was telling us all about it. And, and so I, I just grew up and this was just what I did and I loved it. And the, but the rivalry game at the end of the year was like the pinnacle. And if we won, I carried that with me. And if we lost, I carried it with me. And I remember there, were like, there was a guy in, my, in a, the church that we attended he was a big South Carolina fan, and I was not. And he would like, and he knew like he would get me, and so he would like constantly, uh, just you know, he was friends with my dad, and he would constantly just do it to goad me. And man, I would be mad at him for like weeks after that if we lost that game. Uh, and I don't know how he felt, but I would rub it in for weeks if we won, and I just it just carried it with me. And so I, I think it's just the nature when you have rivals, and they go at it kind of be, carry that stuff with you and so that's natural right but as the believers in what this book says to be true as people who have found this to be true for our lives or maybe if you're here or listening and you're, and you're not really certain and you're trying to figure it out and you're not there yet to where you believe know this that once you come to that faith and we know this to be real there are no more rival sides, right? Like I can look at friends who support a different team and we're buddies. 
and I don't pay attention to it nearly as much as I used to. I'm too busy with kids. Maybe, and I remember my dad being like that. He'd be like, why do you get so wrapped up in this? But now it's switched roles, and I think it's just because he didn't have kids at home now, and so he can, has time to devote to that. I don't have time to devote to it. If I get to watch an entire football game, it's great, right? But we, we kind of tend to carry those things with us, but I know like, it has nothing to do with like Florida State because half of my family were big Florida State fans, and I thought they were jerks because of that. I didn't, didn't make me anything about Willie. And that's a silly thing, but we have two rival sides in our politics, right? And, and really what's happening... And we need to name this so that we know what's really happening on both sides. Is both sides are, de- are attempting to dehumanize the other side. And that's dangerous, dangerous ground. Because when you can take the humanity out of somebody, then you can do a lot of things that you would not normally do. Uh, I've sat with some of you guys who were in the Vietnam War. and You know that to be true. I've been to the country of Rwanda. And I've walked through essentially catacombs with skulls that have machete holes in the heads of the skulls. How could one neighbor do that to the other neighbor? Well, over a period of a couple of years, the government, the leader of that government who was in place began to call the rival group cockroaches. Just over and over and over and over and over to the point where that group believed that, and now they're no longer their neighbor, their brother, or sister. They're cockroaches. They're not human anymore. So it's easy to take a machete to them. And a million people were killed in a 90-day span. And so we need to be aware of that. Paul understood this more than we recognize because what we are going through is nothing new. There have always been different factions of society. In fact, in Paul's day, when he wrote these words, and we're going to read them in a second, again, in Paul's day, there were many. There wasn't just two. There were about eight. And they were generally based off of class because there wasn't a political differences because there was one ruler, right? The emperor of Rome was it. There wasn't like, hey, we're going to vote you out. It was like you fall in line or you deal with the consequences. And so for them, it wasn't even political, it was socioeconomic. It was classes of society, and there were like eight or nine, and depending on where you fell, that puts you better than the person who was below you, but you had like somebody ahead of you that you knew was you know better than you, and so it was this whole thing, and Paul is writing to this church, and so here is where the church finds himself. I'm setting this story, we're going to read this, we're going to talk about it for a few minutes, but here's where the church finds himself. It's coming out of a Jewish society, which in Jesus' day and what Jesus was speaking to against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, and we see this as one of the reasons Jesus was killed, he's talking to them. Jesus was way more political than we can ever imagine because he was trying to change the structures of society. I mean, that's what the root word of politics is. It's the politics, it's the structures, it's the things in society that He was trying to flip it on its axis and say this is wrong. So the Jewish people were isolated, but they didn't like it. They had been conquered hundreds of years before. There was this whole revolution that that tried to occur. You You may have somehow, if you grew up in a Catholic church or an Episcopal church, or you stumbled across a Bible that had an apocrypha in the middle of it, there are these books called the Maccabees, and it's about this entire revolution where the 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 Israelites, the Jewish community is trying to rise up and fight power. Um, And that's where actually the Hanukkah 
season comes from, and that celebration comes from. And so there's this whole story of this, but they didn't, they weren't ultimately successful because they're still ruled by Rome. There was some success in there, but they're not ultimately successful. So the, the, the Jewish people are trying their best to clamor for power because that's what, that's what society wanted. Everybody wanted power. And so they're selling a little bits and little bits and little bits of that. The chief priests were in bed with the Roman government. And because they were willing to bow to the Roman government, the Roman government gave them a little bit of power. And so they're like, okay, great. This is fantastic. And this is what Jesus is trying to flip on his head. So this is where the church finds himself in. It's a conquered community living in the land that God had promised them, right? They were in Jerusalem. The land God had promised them. The temple was in place. It's set up. It's functioning. We see Jesus. I mean, that's where Jesus flipped over the tables in the courtyards of the temple. It's where Peter and John were walking into when when the, when the beggar asked him for money, and they said, silver and gold, have I none? But what I have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he did. That, that happened at the temple, so it's in place. But he's, but he's writing this to a group of people who are isolated, not because of class, not because of... But they've isolated themselves because they've chosen to follow Jesus. What it meant to say that some... What did it mean to follow Jesus in that day? It meant to say that somebody else was king rather than Caesar. And that was not looked at. That was actually how the Jewish people were able to get the Roman government to allow them to kind of go and kill and destroy and try to break up the church. That's why the persecution happened. Because they were saying that there was a Messiah, which the Jewish leaders didn't like. And they were also saying that he was king, which the Roman folks didn't like. And so here's an isolated group who find themselves choosing to believe, being compelled by the Holy Spirit to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that God is king of all the earth, and that no matter what any government, as oppressive or as kind as that government is, it's still not Yahweh. And they're saying this is the ultimate rule, and so they, this is the group of people. But within that, these people are different classes. And so you had some wealthy ones. And then you had some who weren't. And they're dealing with some stuff. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, a lot of people who are smarter than I am who've studied scriptures a lot more have said that there's a really strong tie between uh, Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth and Paul's instruction to the church in Rome that maybe... He was dealing with something similar. You know, in Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth, he's telling them, you know, you're basically being sacrilegious to the, uh, to the Eucharist, to the Lord's Supper, to this communion that we gather in because you're letting people take places of honor and you're isolating some people and some people were invited to the table and some people had to eat outside. And there was this whole social hierarchy that they had brought from what the world outside said into the church. Now, church themselves were all isolated, but within it, they now had created their own hierarchy based off of the things that were happening out there. And so Paul is writing this to them, telling them to this church, like, throw these things away. And so let's read it. I'm reading from a different translation than what I have a Bible in, so forgive me. I'm going to read off this paper here. Love must be without hypocrisy. That's how Paul starts it out. What is the implication of that? That there's a way to love hypocritically. There's another translation that I like 
It says love must be sincere. The implication is there's a way to do loving things that aren't sincere. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. What a fantastic way to put that. Try to outdo each other in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the needs, uh, excuse me, share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. You see, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. The community set apart for a distinct mission called out. They're being called out of the world as a community set apart for a distinct mission in relation to the rest of the world. The statement leads us to ask kind of a couple questions about it. And I wrote some of these down. What is, this, what is distinctive about the community called church? So they're forced to ask, like, what makes us different? What is the character and narrative of our community? What are the norms that guide and practices that sustain us? All these things were things that set them apart from the rest of society. As a community, self-understanding, a way of living cannot be detached from his relation to the surrounding world. So, so they also need to ask a couple other questions. How does the world see us? What kind of world is the faith community a part of? What is the stance in relation to the world? In other words, our attempt to understand the inner life of a faith community can be successful only if we take into account its relation with the surrounding world. This is as true of the church during the time of Apostle Paul as is true to us today. We have to ask ourselves these questions. What is it that sets us apart? Because we are called. Through the entire scripture, God is calling a people to himself. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see, a, we see the, God's pursuit of humanity. And he's calling them to himself, and he's calling us to be different. Constantly. The whole, a lot of, a lot of us, and I've talked to some of you in this room who get bored reading Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, specifically Leviticus and Numbers. All of Leviticus is basically how are you going to look different than everybody else? The pagans weren't burning down their house when they got a little bit of mold in it. All right, God said, "I want you to be holy in everything. I want everything of yours to be clean." It was God's way of saying, I'm going to set you apart. When God called them out of Egypt, across the river, God said, set up these 
stones and remember what I've done. Remember how it's been different for you than it is for me. When, when Daniel was put, a, put into, uh, when, when Daniel was pulled into the Babylonian uh, exile and the king wanted to give him all the finest stuff, Daniel said, well, that we're a little bit different. Let us have our own food. Trust that God is going to sustain us through this. And they did, and they saw God's faithfulness. The whole of Scripture is saying you're going to be different than everybody else. I'm not calling you to rise up and fight power, but sometimes that was what we see in Scripture. Their whole job was to follow Christ. And Paul is basically telling the church, like, this is your job to follow Christ because it's going to look different because Christ, there is no hierarchy. In fact, if you read the book of Philemon, which we may go through here shortly again, but if you remember, Philemon had this slave named Onesimus. And it was legal, and it was good, and it was okay. And Paul is basically taking that structure that he learned from Jesus when Jesus flipped all this on his head for Paul, and he's saying, hey, Philemon, look, Onesimus, he's good. He's been good to me. And now I want you to receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. That wasn't what society said. Society said you own this guy for whatever reason. Like maybe he owed you some money. He couldn't repay it. And now he's working it off. Maybe you attained him legally. Maybe it was passed down through a family. Who knows? But it was this relationship that Paul was saying, we're going to flip upside down. And he's writing this to the church of Rome and said, I want you to do things just a little bit differently. Let's get away from these hierarchies. First off, let's seek love and do it without hypocrisy. How in the world is it possible to love somebody Hypocritically. You may remember, or you may have heard at some point, that word, I'm going to stay right here, I get a little ringing if I move too far, that word hypocrisy in the Greek literally was a word that was used in stage shows and theater. It meant to put on a mask. Right? It's possible to put, to put a mask on and do loving things for people without actually caring a whole lot about them. But what example did Jesus give? Jesus gave the example of, I care about this person so much, I'm going to die for him. So Paul says, love must be that way. Love must be done not hypocritically, not, I'm going to do this nice thing, but I really don't like you, right? What I say as a kid to my sisters, I don't hate you, but I don't like you, right? Because mom and dad's going to be mad if I say hate. And it's wrong, it says it in the Bible, so I can't hate you, but I ain't going to like you. do this to my kids all the time. They get mad at each other. Go give them a hug. They'll walk away. That was, love your brother or your sister in that moment? What's wrong with you? Like, but we can do this as adults. We can do loving things and have the hypocrisy in our heart, have, not have love towards them. Detest what is evil. Let's do away with everything that's evil. Right? If we think about all the things in our world that come at us, and I don't mean things that we don't like. I mean things we do like. I mean, I brought it up earlier. In the past two weeks, we've had both of our major political, uh, what do you call them? Uh, parties. Thank you. Uh, both of our major political parties had their conventions, and both of them had things in there that was detestable to God. 
And as believers, we have to be able to own that and say that, right? Like, this may be the way I vote, but that's wrong. And we have to call it out. We have to speak truth to power, right? We have to detest all, all evil, even if it's on our side. All evil, even if we don't agree with it. How, how do we do this? As parents, we understand this. Like, if you ever had a kid or you ever had any kind of family member, you don't even have to be a parent. Like, you had a family member, right, who did something you didn't like? You still love that person, but you have to be able to call that out. Say, this is wrong. This isn't good. This isn't true. This isn't right. You have to change this. Some of you parents have told me stories about kids that didn't change that or haven't yet. You don't cut them off. You don't say, I don't love you. I still love you. That's wrong. That's bad. That's not good. You have to change. And I'm constantly praying for that change. Right? And we have to cling to what is good. Detest all that is evil. And cling to what is good. Hold that hope close that this is good, this is true. I want this to be right. I want this to be good. And so I'm going to cling to it because that is the face of God showing through in situations. Paul says, show family affections to one another with brotherly love. Sometimes that's easier than doing it with our own families, right? But show family affection. Show so much love and forgiveness for other people who aren't part of your family. And do it with brotherly love. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in the spirit. Paul talks about and We kind of joke about it in the church. About new Christians who receive Christ for the first time. They're really on fire for God's. And I've even heard people say stuff like this, like, you'll eventually get over that. You'll eventually calm down on that. Like, you'll eventually kind of level yourself out. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul says, be fervent in the Spirit. I don't want that to die. I want you to always be that way. At what point did it level out for Paul, right? His Pharisees, buddies, oh, you'll get over that. You'll be done with it. It never leveled out for Paul. In fact, Paul just kind of kept going and kept going and kept going. It never leveled out. For us, it can't. We have to constantly be fervent in the spirit to rejoice when there's hope. And in all things, where does our hope lie? In Jesus. There's always hope. And we can rejoice in that. Be patient in affliction. This is Paul's way of telling this church group, you're going to have trials. Just like Jesus in John 17. This is going to happen to you. It's okay. Trust in me is what Jesus said. Paul's saying, just be patient in affliction. It's going to happen. You're going to have this. It doesn't make you abnormal. It doesn't mean you're in sin. It just means the world's in sin and they're against you. Just got to be patient in it. But there's a, but there's a word that he says in there. Persistent in prayer. And all through that, be persistent in prayer. If you skip down one more verse, Paul then goes on to those, where that affliction comes from. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What in the world? That, that's not just like don't get vengeance, right? At the end, he talks about not getting vengeance. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So feed them if they're hungry. Like that's not just not, not getting vengeance. Paul's saying bless them. He goes a step further than that and says, don't curse them. <laughs> He's saying bless them and don't curse them. This is where really Paul starts to, you know, those first things are just kind of, well, we skipped over one. In verse 13, it says, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. So Paul's talking to the church, saying these are some ways you need to act and react with each other. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. The Jewish version of hospitality was the act of taking a person from a stranger to a friend. Pursue that with everybody. But then Paul kind of begins to kind of turn. Like some Bibles actually even break it up here. Verse 16. Be in agreement with one another. He's saying this to a group of people who weren't, who were divided in a lot of ways. I mean, they were united in Christ, but they found ways even in Christ to kind of split themselves up. And Paul's saying, hey, be in agreement with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. It's almost as if Paul's talking to that top rung saying, even be in agreement with the bottom row who don't have what you have, who doesn't have the things that, that you have. He goes one step further and says, make sure that you associate with those humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. I need to read that like on a daily basis. Not to be wise in my own estimation. Do not repay evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. Their society was no different than ours. What, is, what does our society say? Repay evil for evil. They deserve it, right? You can't, you can't look on social media longer than 10 minutes without seeing some post about karma, somebody getting what they deserve, an Eastern religious idea of what comes around goes around. Paul's saying, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. This reminds me of a story. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read, but there's a author by the name of Wendell Berry. And all of his fiction kind of follow this storyline. Has anybody ever read anything by him? Okay. All of his fiction kind of follow the storyline of this town, Port Williams, Kentucky. It's a small one-horse town, and he writes about these characters in this town. 
And there's some families that he brings out. And one is a family by whose last name is Feltner. And another's last name is Coulter. And you can kind of read some of through some of their stories. And these are these are it's all fiction. Uh, and there's a, there's a um, there's a collection called Fidelity that he wrote, and it's a collection of short stories. And one of the short stories in there is called "Pray Without Ceasing," and uh, it tells a story of um, it's told by the grandson. The grandson's name is Andy, and I don't know that we ever get his last name. But the grandson is telling the story of his grandfather, who's been, whose name is Ben Feltner. And his best friend, Thad Coulter. And the son, which is the father of the grandson who's telling the story, his name's Matt, and his interaction with these guys. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of this story because it was a little bit of Wendell Berry's way because Wendell Berry would find creative ways within his writing to tell story that told of Scripture. And it was one of those things that tells this story of love must be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, show family affection to one another with brotherly love, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lack diligence, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For his written vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Wendell Berry tries to pull that scripture out in this story. It's a story that's told, like I said, by Andy, of his father. And he's, the way the story is told is he's talking to his father. And his father's kind of retelling some of the story of how his dad died. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of that story. So what happened? Ben Feltner was a good man. He was a farmer in this little town, and his buddy had a farm that butted right up against his. His name was Thad Coulter. And Ben and Thad were good friends. In fact, Ben had helped Thad sign the note to get his property, to get this farm. And Thad's son thought he was smarter than he was, and he worked for the local grocer there and thought, well, I'll get some property and I'll start my After a little bit of learning, he just said, well, I'm going to start my own grocer. And a dad, a proud dad who wanted his son to be a merchant there in the middle of town, said, I'll help you. And so he put up this farm as the collateral for a banknote for his son to start this grocery store. And it failed. And the bank calls in Thad and his son takes off and he leaves town the bank calls in Thad and is ready to call in the note. And he can't get any help anywhere. And he's upset. And he knows he only has really one thing to do, and that's to go back to his buddy who had helped him start this and ask him. He really doesn't want to swallow his pride in that way. So what he does first is he goes home and drinks enough courage to go and talk to his buddy. 
In fact, the way the Wendell Berry wrote it was when he gets to drinking, he does it as if the Lord has given him a commission to finish it all. And so this is the state that he goes to his friend in. And so he goes really drunk and really, you know, kind of belligerent and tells him what's happening in the best way that he can. And his buddy wants to help him, but he says, now it's not a time to talk. You need to go home and sober up and then we'll chat. When his not clearest mind, he reads that to say, my friend is also turning me away, just like the banks and just like everybody else. And he just gets anger and anger and anger on the way home. His daughters pick him up on the way and take him back home. And he goes home and he gets more angry and more angry and more angry. And he picks up a gun and he's walking through town. And he runs across and his, his friend is going to try to find some family members. Ben is going to find some family members of Thad who can maybe help him sober up. He doesn't realize how mad he is. Help him sober up and talk through his situation. He's, he really wants to help him. And while he's talking to one of the cousins of, of Thad, Thad sees him in town. And he pulls his pistol out. And before Ben can say anything, Thad shoots him in the head. And he falls to the ground and he dies. And he turns himself into the sheriff and said, you know, I've killed the only friend I ever had. And he's broken, and he's heartbroken, and, you know, that's a sobering kind of event. And it's all kind of coming to him at the same time. And this is where the story picks up. And this is a beautiful part of, I have some of it written down, but I, I, there's a couple little places. Because what happens is Matt, hears the commotion in town, and he runs out. So Matt is the, is the son. He's the father of Andy, the son of Ben. And he runs out as fast as he can. He hears a commotion. He hears a gunshot. He runs out. He sees his dad there, and he's angry, right? He's ready to, and he has a good friend who stops him on the way. In fact, it's an older guy, and, and Matt's a lot younger and a lot stronger, and the guy's just hanging on to him, right? He's just hanging on to him. I don't want you to get away until he eventually calms down, and he goes back home. In a crowd, you may read this to be a posse, comes to the house. And this is where I'm going to pick up the crowd, because this is what the crowd wants to do. The crowd moved up near the porch and stopped, and there was a moment of hesitation while it murmured and jostled inside itself. Be quiet, boys, someone said. Let Doc do the talking. They became still, and then Dr. Starnes, who stood up in the front rank, took a step forward. Matt, he said, we're here as your daddy's friends. We've got word that Thad Coulter's locked up in the jail at, the Har- at Hargrave, and we, we want you to know that we don't like what he did. Several voices said no and no, sir. We know it was a thing done out of meanness, and we don't think we can stand for it, or that we ought to, or that we ought to wait on somebody else's opinion about it. He was seen by a large number of witnesses to do what he did. Somebody said that's right. We think it's our business, and we propose to make it our business. It's only up to you to say the word, and we'll ride down there tonight and put justice beyond question. We have a rope. And now the crowd, and the now silent crowd, someone held up a coil of a rope with a noose already tied. 
The doctor gave a slight bow of his head to Matt, and then he tipped his hat to Nancy, who now stood by his side behind Matt. And again, the crowd murmured and stirred lightly. And it goes on, but here's Matt's response. No, gentlemen, I appreciate it all. We all do, but we ask you not to do it. And Jack, who had not sat down since this morning, Jack was the friend who had stopped him. I forgot his name. Stepped back and sat down. Nancy, that was the wife of Ben, under whose feet the earth was not shaking, if it had ever had, stepped up beside her son and took his arm. And she said to the crowd, I know you're my husband's friends and I thank you. I too must ask you not to do as you proposed. Matt has asked you, I have asked you, and if Ben could, he would ask you. Let us make what peace is left for us to make. If you want to, Matt said, come and be with us. We have food and you're all welcome. There's a story of this place where vengeance could rise up. And Wendell Berry writes this story about finding forgiveness and peace in the middle of that moment. But the way he ends it is a way that I think that tells a beautiful story of how God wants us to interact with all people and in all ways, even in the midst of evil. Because the way the story ends... This is Andy, the grandson, writing. Though the culture still abound in Port William, no Feltner of the name is left. But the Felter line continues. Joined to the culture line in me, and I am here. I am blood kin to both sides of that moment when Ben Feltner turned his face to Thad in the road and Thad pulled the trigger. The two families sundered in the ruin of a friendship. were united again first in new friendship and then in marriage. My grandfather made a peace here that has joined many who would otherwise have been divided, and I am the child of his forgiveness. Church, that is a picture of what God wants for us. He wants us to be people who make peace in the place where it would otherwise be divided. That people may see the kingdom of God in that and come to faith that they may become believers And can look to us as examples of that. And saying, that's my spiritual father. That's my spiritual mother who made peace. And I'm a child of the forgiveness and the peace they brought through Jesus Christ. Now I'm a believer because of that. That's a picture of what the church's job is. To, in the midst of division, find peace. That's what Paul is writing to this church. I shut my paper, but love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That doesn't mean someone's not going to pull a gun out in the middle of the road, hypothetically speaking, or maybe even really, really speaking. Take a shot. God said, as far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. God, you've given us this example of what it is to love you. Along with that, you've given us examples of what it is to love other people. God, we can very easily forget that and walk around with pride saying, I've been forgiven, I have wisdom, I have knowledge, and I'm good. And can quickly do that without acknowledging the fact that only that comes from the fact that you gave it, and you gave it mercifully, even when we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. You just poured it out on us. God, let us not be people who require others to earn our love, our mercy, or our grace as if we have any to give that you don't already supply. God, as we move into a very, very tense season in our country and socially, we feel it a lot around. God, would we be people who embody these words as far as it depends on us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you let us live at peace with everyone? God, let us not lack or lose the zeal that we have for you. If we have, God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would let that rise back up. That that peace would be for something, not to just be a pacifist, because I don't believe you've called us to that. But God, you've called us to that so that people can see and know and feel and experience the kingdom of God, which is a very active thing that you've called us to. Maybe we, may we be people who practice these things so that others can see that we're different. We're not like everyone else. And you're calling us to that. May we be faithful. God, we love you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information, please visit us at www.mosaiceasley.org.